Hello, welcome to Spotlight. I'm Howard Kane, a sort of lightweight and much cheaper Melvin Bragg. Spotlight, brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. This evening, some good news for one of the island's ever-dwindling number of church organs, albeit it's not necessarily good for the island. And Jed talks to Georgina and Kira from Cremsdale Media about a powerful film on the most harrowing of subjects. As always, do get in touch with any creative artistic endeavours you might be involved in, planning, hoping to create, or would really like to put in the spotlight, be they poetic, visual, theatrical, musical, literary. Just email me, spotlight at maxradio.com, or, if you prefer, direct Howard Kane. That's Kane with an E at maxradio.com. First off, do you believe in fairies? I'm sure most of you do. It is the art of man, after all. And everyone knows if you don't want to get a puncture on your way to the airport, do not forget to say faster mime and or whatever your version of that is, as you pass through the ferry bridge. If you've ever wanted to find out more about the island's little folk, well, now's your chance. Manx Fairies by John Cruz. A new book looks at the subject in intimate detail, written by a man who has a deep understanding of the subject, having published numerous tomes on fairy folklore of the British Isles. His Isle of Man volume looks at not just fairies, but various goblins, fairy beasts, mermaids, and is described as a kind of microcosm of Britain's fairies here on the island. I spoke to John from his home around London and began by asking if the island's fairy folklore was unique. It's got its own unique aspects and it's got quite a lot of things in in common as well. And that was part of the the reason for um, me getting interested in the first place, because when I started doing the blog in, in summer 2016, my, my idea was to concentrate on British fairies, because one thing I, I thought was that you know, there's quite a lot written about fairies these days, but quite often people are quite sort of free and easy about just sort of picking and choosing from all over the place to, um, to produce... Uh, the information that gets published or put on the web or whatever. Uh, and I wanted to be a bit more, I suppose, uh, purist about it and and just look at the British information to the exclusion of, uh, of stuff, say, from Ireland. And it, that led me to looking at the Isle of Man, because the Isle of Man, you know, inevitably, being where it is, it, it has some elements of, uh, of the, the Irish uh, law, though maybe not, as much as you might expect, and then there's there's bits of, of stuff that you'd certainly recognise from Scotland, and quite a lot of stuff that's shared with England as well. Uh, so and 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 Wales uh, for that matter, and uh, so it it provided you know within quite a small geographical area, it provided a nice summary of a lot of the key themes of. British fairy lore in the broadest sense of the term, as well as having lots of really interesting features which are kind of unique to the island. And what are those sort of key themes? Because I suppose the island has long been entwined with stories about little people and uh, fairies and uh, I think goblins and such like as well. There are fairy bridges, a famous one on the sort of yep. main road going down to the airport, but that seems intertwined with sort of some folklore and then also some sort of clever marketing going back in the day, the Isle of Man being a very popular tourist attraction. 
Yeah, I, I think that's well. That, that's something that yeah, lots of uh, parts of the, the British Isles have done. You know, I mean, my my family, a large part of my family, is from Cornwall, and obviously there's a lot in the southwest flogging pixies to people, uh, you know, and tourist attractions and that sort of thing. And it, that's that's bound to happen, and that's been happening since Victorian times, uh, really, in in different parts of of the British Isles. Um, but What's unique about uh, man, I would say partly the the more kind of maybe, uh, I suppose, scary aspects, perhaps, the uh, the Beguines and the Fenodery and the Glashtin, uh, which are quite unique to the island. I mean, you can see some parallels between those sorts of uh, goblin types and, uh, and creatures you'd find in Scotland and, and in England. But at the same time, they, are, they have their own special features, which means that you know, you, you've got to deal with them separately, really. An aspect which has always interested me is the, um, the fairy lover, the Leon and she. Um, that's something again you get in uh, in the Highlands of Scotland, but it's it's a particular feature of the um, the folklore on man. You know, these sort of almost kind of vampire-like women who attach themselves to men, and then they just can't really get rid of them. You know, they're they're invisible to everybody else, but to the the man who's been. Uh, chosen if you like then she's there all the time she shares his food with him and she kind of wears him down slowly really and she's impossible to escape uh and then lots of little features i suppose i mean one quite surprising thing about manx folklore is is um the emphasis that's put on the smell of the little people uh and that's something that you barely get anywhere else in uh, in the whole of Britain and Ireland, this um, this kind of very physical sense that um, you know if you if you go to a, a glen where the fairies have just been, there will be a very particular smell, <laughs> maybe not a very nice smell. No, I was going to ponder, yeah, a particular smell that I hadn't heard that. So the smell the smell isn't necessarily a good one. <laughs> no, it isn't. Um, the yes, it's a. Uh, well, there was one woman, I forget exactly where it was on, on Man, but she, um, she went down to the, the, the nearby stream to do some washing, uh, and the fairies had just departed, and she said something like, oh, what a stink, uh, and they, they took her revenge on her for being so rude. Um, but it does cut both ways as well, because there's, there's another story from Man where um, a person was out at night and he, he came across this house which he, he didn't even know was there uh, previously and they took him in and they gave him accommodation and then they said well, we're going to have to hide you because we've got some visitors about to arrive uh, and those visitors turned out to be um, the little people um, but they realised that there was a human on the premises because they could smell him so uh, we shouldn't get too kind of uh, I suppose uh, proud of uh, or contemptuous of the fairies because they think that we smell as bad as, as we say they do, uh, yeah. apparently. Now, I never knew fairies had their own distinct scent other than the washing up liquid, of course. More amazingly, that scent apparently isn't that attractive. You've been warned. Next time you're out and about in the beautiful Manx countryside and an unpleasant odour fills your nostrils, you'll think twice and look around more carefully.
Manx Fairies, published by Green Magic Publishing, an independent publishing company based in the southwest of England. For more details, you can go to the website greenmagicpublishingalloneword.com. Spotlight, brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Now, sexual assault, a subject which is never far from the news, sadly, it seems, but it's still often swept under the carpet somewhat, or at best sidelined as being too sensitive to talk about. Now, a new film by island-based Credensdale Media tackles this important topic head-on and reminds us how ever-present such abuse is in modern life and how we can't ignore it. Jed Power spoke to Georgina King and Kira Mackey. At the start of last year, I decided that uh, 2021 was the year that I was going to make um, a film about sexual assault. Um, it happened to me when I was 19, so about four years ago now, and I'd wanted to make something about it, a film about it, um, at some point. Um, but last year just felt like it was finally time. Um, there was a lot going on with Sarah Everard, and it just felt like people maybe were starting to actually pay attention. So um, I decided to start putting that together. In March, I interviewed... I think I interviewed 11 people um, and then I also spoke myself and that audio then became the audio that you hear in the short film um, and then I think it was in about August, September we then filmed the, vid- the visuals to go alongside with um, the audio and that's where um, Kira came in and helped us bring that to life. Kira, um, your experience on film, um, was this your, your first, what can I say, venture? Yes, it was. It was my first time behind the camera for a short film. Um, I just finished doing a play with Georgie, who was um, behind the scenes, To Kill a Mockingbird, and she approached me about it, and I knew immediately it was such... With her story, it felt so current, and as you said, with the traction it was getting, um, and your story, it really felt like this had the power to really change people's lives and really help with that, and I knew immediately this was something I would love to do and it was my first time behind the camera but it was an incredible experience. I really felt the power of film when I did this and I hope people feel the inspiration behind it and I hope that it does get to heal so many people who watch it. So Georgie, very powerful I must admit, Um, it certainly brought my morning to a standstill. Let's just go and turn the clock back a little. You've got um, experience in film production um, through university and so forth. Just give us a bit more background about that, please. Yeah, so um, when I finished my A-levels, I decided I wanted to go into filmmaking. I wasn't sure which area yet, so um, I went and did a course at the University of Salford in Media City, and um, that was a three-year course, and... Over that course, I realised that I specifically wanted to write and direct, and I did a lot of sound as well, Um, but really found a passion for directing and telling stories. Um, I also met my partner there, Reese, who was the cinematographer on After, the short film, and um, we've we've just come out of uni. um, Well, in 2020, we came out of uni during COVID, and um, with everything that was going on, it it just ended up falling into place that we created um, our business, Crab and Cell Media, which um, we majoritively use to make short films, um, but we also do commercials and things like that as well. Um, and I've worked on a few things with um, people in England that I met at uni as well. So um, just at the moment doing a lot of writing and directing, that's kind of where most of my experience lies. For something like this, 
the content is ultra serious and impactive. I don't think I've got the phraseology really to, to, to give it justice, but certainly when I watched the film, and I've watched it twice, the accounts that were given by victims uh, form a big part of, of what the message is, is being sent. Could you just tell us um, how how you, you you kind of got in touch with, you know, this group of people who've been very brave to come forward? Yeah, so I, um, I put a post out on Facebook, I think in February or March of 2021, um, asking for interviewees, um, explaining that we were going to make a short film and that it was people that had been um, sexual assault survivors and then I they would contact me so I got emails and messages um, about that and interviewed them I think I ended up with 30 hours of um, interview recordings and we spoke for ages about everything that they've been through everything that they felt all their experiences with it and you know including the police and everything that we didn't manage to include in the film and um eventually I had to cut that down to make the audio in the film but it, it was it was very hard to cut that down because I'd you know I'd spoken to them for so long and felt quite attached to them actually by the time we'd finished um doing all the interviews you know they felt like people I could actually talk about my experience with as well um you know allies in this thing that we were going through so trying to cut out things that to me felt very important was an absolute nightmare <laughs> But yeah, they they all were so brave and have have you know been been so brave throughout the process of hearing themselves in it as well. That's always a hard thing to hear yourself in in a project, especially if you're not an actor or anything. Um, and they and they were very open about everything that they've been through and everything that they felt. And I just I just really appreciate them being so um, open and honest with me. Kira, you you'd listen to the audio. I'd imagine more than, on more than one occasion, really, to grasp what the theme um, of the film is. Just talk to me about that and, and your feelings about that, what you heard. So I was one of the voice actors for the audio as well, so I'd kind of prepared for the kind of account that it would be like. Um, and the first time I actually ever heard the audio was over a Zoom call when we were discussing the planning for the film. And I did... When you, when you first have that reaction to it, feel the weight of the words and the importance and have that emotional connection to it. It was, in one sentence, like it's heartbreaking, but with the ending, hopeful. And I think that was what I got from it immediately, just Georgie's message of hope for the end. And so keep on listening to it. I did get a little bit desensitized to it, which I think we both spoke of trying to get back the the make sure that the feeling is throughout the film but even during filming there's a scene where Georgie just straight played the audio for me to act to and it wasn't even acting it was just my response to the words and the survivors speaking and um I really when you listen to it I feel even you've said just when you listen to it it just it feels like two like two people emotionally connecting you just it's it's really hard to listen to someone emotionally open up and connect, but like you said, being so proud of them doing it. Tell me about uh, plans for the film, say this year. Where, where is it going to be seen and uh, where is it going to go? 
So there will be um, a couple of months, I'm, I'm estimating about six months, where um, it will go to festivals. So we start submitting to those festivals um, this weekend and um, hopefully there'll be festivals that um, may do some screenings online. So if you keep up to date with us um, on our Facebook page or something, then you may be able to see that um, that we have there are other screenings if you haven't seen it and then if you still don't get a chance to watch it during that time um it will be available on youtube after its festival circuit so once it's all done with all of those um we will just put it online for people to see and and um, learn from and then um i'm happy to announce that we do actually have um confirmation that we're turning it into a short play um that will be taken to the edinburgh fringe in august and we're already starting um planning that and, and sorting that all out. So that'll be longer form sort of monologues, um, but with the same survivor stories who obviously fully involved and um, will help us make those monologues. You mentioned a Facebook page. So just remind <laughs> us where we go to to catch up with uh, the latest. Yes, yeah, so it's Crebensdale Media, uh, C-R-E-B-B-I-N-S-D-A-L-E. Um, media. <laughs> the film is called After. For more details, you can see Crebensdale Media on Facebook or email george at com. And as Georgina says, you'll be able to see the film online later this year. Now, organs. Yep, stop laughing at the back there, please, Bostridge Minor. I'm talking church organs specifically, more pertinently, the plight they face on the Isle of Man. In essence, they're dwindling at a rate of knots here. But it seems that's not the case in other parts of the world. Well, recently, I saw some good news for at least one of the island's smaller church organs, which has been saved from what was going to be probable destruction, but sadly won't be staying here on the island. Peter Jones is as far as I know, the island's only organ builder. He told me the loss of these wonderful old musical instruments goes hand in glove with dwindling congregations at many of the island's churches. That is the problem, the fact that the support for the churches these days is uh, nothing like what it used to be. Even when I first came over here, the churches were, uh, the congregations were a lot bigger and therefore, of course, they could uh, afford more. Also, there is a problem with uh, organists in that um, church organists are now getting uh, rather few and far between. The Isle of Man Organist Association over here does run a training scheme for um, people who would either like to learn the organ or uh, someone in the congregation who, say, has keyboard skills. Maybe they play the piano and uh, they're a bit afraid about... Um, having a, a go on the church instrument. We also uh, run a scheme to help people uh, convert, as it were, or give them a, a pointers as to how best to play the church organ. But it's principally, I'm afraid, numbers dwindling in the churches. Now, is this unique to the island? Because I'm thinking, I think I saw one on your Facebook page earlier on that are going over to Portugal. So you think some people want these uh, lovely old instruments, even if we don't? Oh, absolutely, yes. In the UK, over in England and so on in the UK, they are having the same problem, but it's not the same worldwide. Uh, we've sent um, one instrument over, as you say, to Portugal. That was a, a reed organ, not a pipe organ, but same idea. 
Beethoven in Douglas that went to Poland. And uh, another instrument which wasn't on the island, but uh, I happen to know the owner, um, that was a cross in the UK, that also went to Poland. So, uh, yes, they seem to be valued, certainly in Poland and in other places. We had an inquiry, for example, for the um, Methodist organ in Station Road, Port Erin. We had one inquiry from the Philippines, and really the only thing that spoiled that was the backlog in containers around the world caused by the COVID uh, problem. Yes, of course. And uh, as a result, I, I, I was amazed at this Meseron um, deal with containers over here. It seems, according to them, and I have to take their word for it, it's not possible to put an organ into a container over here and have it sent to the Philippines. It has to go to England, and then it has to be reloaded into another container, even if you own the container. No, no, they won't take your container necessarily. They'll, they'll want to reload it into theirs, and that's an impossibility with a pipe organ. You can't have people messing around with it. They don't know what they're doing. When it comes apart, it'll come apart into many hundreds of pieces, lots of them uh, delicate and heavy. So it's not like um, somebody's house furniture or something like that. You have to have someone who knows what they're doing. I was going to say, I assume this is a highly specialist work. Just how difficult is it to dismantle an entire organ, ship it <laughs> to wherever, and then reassemble it? I'm, I'm assuming we're talking months of work? Depending on the size of the organ and the condition, yes. The station road organ will probably come down in about a week. And then when it's uh, shipped, it might take a fortnight to put it back together again. Depends, of course, if you if you have an organ builder and uh, this is what's needed. You certainly wouldn't be able to do this kind of work, uh, you know, as an amateur. People have tried and with some success, but that's when it does take week, weeks and months what have you. So the organ, as you were saying, this is the one at uh, Methodist Church, which caught my eye originally, out in Station Road there. So this is what, I think this summer, um, the Polish organ builder, I think it's Valdemar, is it Valdemar Olszewski coming across, and he's going to basically take the whole thing to pieces and take it away. That is the plan, certainly. If anyone uh, of your listeners is Polish, they'll have to forgive my pronunciation. <laughs> I gather the, the gentleman is called Waldek or Waldek Olszewski. Mm-hmm. And uh, the plan at the moment is he will come over in probably June or something like that, June, July. He will dismantle the organ. He's he's coming over with um, a large enough vehicle and some help, you see, so we we haven't got the uh, container problem. And uh, it will be shipped off to a new home in Gdynia in Poland. Um... It's a similar sort of place to Port Erin, but with some huge differences. It is also a tourist uh, destination and a seaport. But unlike Port Erin, I gather from Wikipedia that the population is something like 245,000. Slightly bigger. (laughs) The 12th largest city, apparently, in Poland. It's on the Baltic coast. Looking forward just generally for the whole art, I suppose, of organ building, organ playing... Is it, do you think, a sort of a dying art generally because of, as you were saying before, particularly in this part of the world, sort of dwindling congregations? Or is it something that's just going through a bit of a lull? I think it'll always be highly specialised. The 
big churches and the wealthier churches will retain their pipe organs, but the smaller churches, I can foresee, will disappear, unfortunately. Organ builder Peter Jones talking to me with a slightly sad story, it seems, for lovers of church organs, albeit a happy ending for one of these wonderful old instruments. Who knows? Perhaps fashions and tastes will change in years to come and the organ will rise again, as it were. Don't forget, if you want to hear anything again, go to manxradio.com and download the Spotlight podcast and listen at your leisure. Drop me a line with any artistic thoughts or ideas and I'll see you next week. Cheerio. Thank you.